Uh, Jeff, the reason uh, you and I drive that way is because being mechanics, we know how to fix them, but we don't want to have to fix our own. <laughs> That was the voice of Bruce Mallinson of Pittsburgh Power, one of two diesel pros you'll hear on the podcast today. I'm Todd Dills, your host for this edition of Overdrive Radio, and the second of those diesel pros Bruce Bruce referred to directly there, responding to Gray's garage owner Jeff Gray's observation that his better half had told him, well, he drove like he was a few decades older than he is. As Mallinson noted, better to drive like your grandpa than have to fix the truck. Both of those men know what the consequences can be, for sure, in pushing mechanical limits, and in today's podcast, we're going to hear from them both on the central subject of maintenance. A lot of the discussion related to ways to get the right diagnosis and the right repair the first time when any emissions-related problem presents itself in a post-2006 diesel. Originally broadcast live via Overdrive's website and YouTube channel, the discussion was called Dealing with Diesel After-Treatment Demons. A response to the fairly muddled approaches to after-treatment maintenance that have risen since the introduction of the diesel particulate filter in 2007 engines. As noted, joining me live were the two aforementioned shop owners. Bruce Mallinson's voice will no doubt be familiar to Sirius XM Road Dog listeners and longtime Overdrive subscribers. Here he is with a bit of an introduction. Well, my background started in 1965 when I was 16 years old and discovered the internal combustion engine. I gave up baseball, the saxophone, and golf clubs. And I became fascinated with cars, and then it went on to racing, and I ended up in road racing, road racing a 66 Corvette, that led me into the diesel engine business. I was in traffic and transportation. I joined the trucking industry in 1969. 1977 is whenever I took over a small fuel injection shop for a Chuck Passmore that wanted to move to Tampa, Florida. And then uh, I brought race car technology into diesel engines and we're always looking to improve. Even to this day, 44 years later, we are improving. So we have three dynos now, five electrical engineers, seven mechanics. I'd like to have 10 mechanics. It's just, that's a hard thing to find, but uh, we, our goal is to make the owner operator happy with this truck. When he said, I love my truck now, then we know we were successful. Also live with us was Jeff Gray, shop owner of Gray's Garage in Pontiac, Illinois. It's an Avistar service only dealer who otherwise does work on all manner of uh, engine and truck makes. As you'll hear, a lot of that work anymore involves emission systems and their electronic controls in this day and age. A long way from what the shop was when Gray Gray's father founded Gray's Garage in the 1960s. He started the business in 63, uh, shortly after he got out of the Air Force. And uh, long story short, when I graduated from high school in 78, I actually had started there a few years before that, but finished school. And I've been there ever since. You know, I started off, I, I swept floors, you know, and just kind of worked my way up. And eventually it started to get to the, to the point where you know it, it looked as though I, I would possibly be able to buy the business from my dad and so I took a lot more interest in what I was doing and then I just kind of started doing everything to where it made a difference to me how quick I could get something done but more importantly getting it done right the first time 
Right. And then, you know, back in the 80s, early 90s, you didn't use a computer. Everything was done, you know, with test light, multimeter. Um, but then as everything changed, you had to you had to start using like a ProLink or some sort of communication and then on into computers. And I didn't want anything to do with it at first, but that's all I do anymore. I mean, it's just one of those things that that you have to evolve. If you don't have the proper software to work on things, you do what I call it, and that's caveman. And you are just, you better have background on how this stuff is supposed to work, but you still can't do a very good job if you don't have a schematic and know exactly how it's supposed to be wired and work. So, uh, you know, I don't like that. So we have invested a lot of money in the past eight years or so getting all of the latest software for every make and model of heavy duty truck and transmission and software so that you can talk to it. You can bring up schematics when you have a problem right. and you have to understand how they actually work. And when one thing malfunctions, it can affect something else. So just because you have a code for an oxygen sensor doesn't mean that the oxygen sensor is bad. You know, you have to check the circuit out, you know, and there's more to it than that even. So, uh, you know, like I said, I own, own the business now and I've been there since uh, full time since 1978. Uh, physically started there in 76 and I love it. You know, my wife actually retires in about six weeks. I have really don't have any desire to retire. I like what I do. <laughs> With all the investment in software and much else besides too, it sounds like Gray's business is poised for ongoing success. The third gentleman joining me on the panel was none other than our own Gary Bucks, longtime owner operator who retired from the road in late 2019. Gary writes on business topics frequently, as regular overdrive readers will know, and no doubt has his ear to the ground as a consultant to a bevy of owner-operators wading into different areas of trucking. There was a story that Gary wrote earlier this year that sent us down the road to this discussion, so I asked him to set up those principal issues of misdiagnosis with a summary of the story of an owner-operator he knows and the pesky gremlins that owner-operator dealt with, at a huge cost. Before we hand it off here to Gary, though, here's a word from Overdrive Radio's sponsor. First Guard provides commercial truck insurance to leased owner-operators done right. As we've done for more than 80 years, we provide physical damage and non-trucking. Many companies make you pay up to six months of insurance premiums up front, but not First Guard. We bill monthly, so you get quality insurance without needing to pay a lot of cash up front. Go to firstguard.com. That's 1-S-T-Guard.com. First Guard. We speak trucker. Let's talk. It really began, I want to say it began with my friend John Osinga in Virginia, which I wrote the blog about, where he had um, just six months or more of um, misdiagnosis, replacing of sensors and so on. When short story is there was a broken part inside of the after treatment system, a physical uh, deflector plate for the uh, uh, doser valve that it was supposed to spray against. And that was, and they, it took them months to finally figure out. So they were just putting band-aids on with new sensors and what the computer was telling, but the computer couldn't tell them that it had a broken part inside. So it really got me thinking about how many times we get um, ill-diagnosed or misdiagnosed and how much money that's costing people. 
Let me even back this story up just a hair more. I've done a few surveys in a small group I have and with others about what the cost they spend on after treatment repair and maintenance. And it'll um, be a few that'll be zero to 5,000 a year. Um, there's a 50% or more are spending greater than $15,000 often in that small discussion. Um, it'll, it'll probably average often in a year, uh, somewhere about 10 to $14,000 a year after the truck reaches a certain miles. And it's like a half a million miles seems to be the break point for a lot of these people. So where I'd like to start off with um, Jeff and Bruce is kind of to think about this as a flow when we come into the shop. Um, you know, number one, how do we even um, diagnose these systems? Where do we start? We need to start with the engine first because I had a client who had an injector problem, but they said it was the after treatment. You start, you know, so how do we know we're getting what we need when we go to a shop? Jeff, think about this question I asked you years ago. I said, what's the biggest maintenance mistake people make? I don't know if you remember what you told me. Well, was, I would say most likely uh, what I was telling you was, this is when emissions first came out and there were so many, uh, trucks that were programmed with a five minute idle shutdown on them that first off the the dealers were not telling the drivers that you need to turn the key on and wait you should wait close to 10 seconds before you go to start it because if you have a intake throttle valve egr valve uh, variable geometry turbo all of those things calibrate themselves when you turn the key on if you do what i call a quick start and you just turn the key on and start like you're starting your car you're going to get all kinds of phantom codes because those components, if they only went 25% of the way, they think that's 100%. And until that key is cycled off, it is going to continue to read wrong. There again, if you have an idle shutdown on it and you've exceeded the five minute or 10 minute shutdown, some of the older ones were able to be started right back up again. They lose that calibration when the idle shutdown occurs so you have to if you have one of those make sure you turn the key off wait 10 seconds turn the key back on wait 10 seconds and then start it so those were the some of the biggest ones um, but even more than that good owner operators need to know their vehicle they need to know every sound that that truck makes they need to know what it feels like they need to watch their gauges they need to know you know their boost what, where does it normally run when uh when they're running down the road under a load you know what kind of temperature does it run you know and any other gauges that you have know them know the sounds that way when something does start to happen what sounds different or what feels different and then don't be afraid to tell whoever is it's going to work on it don't be afraid to give them all the information that it's about it. when I would much rather have the driver that was operating the vehicle come in so I can talk to them myself rather than have their boss call and say, well, he's got a vibration or it's low on power. There's a lot of different things that can cause that. And if you talk to the operator, you can get a whole lot more information than just, you know, it's short on power. So those are the things I would, I would start with. When, when someone comes into the shop, 
Now, how do you make sure you get the right information from them? Do you have a kind of a questionnaire, a uh, sign-in process, an interview kind of, I mean, you know, make sure that they're, you're getting, you know, what they've done to the truck previously, for example? That is one of the things that I would absolutely uh, go into. For example, yesterday we had a truck that was in that had his truck worked on um, just two days prior. And he came into our shop, had the exact same codes that he had had the, uh, those two days before. And three weeks before that, he had the exact same codes. Um, long story short, what was wrong is when the dealers were working on it, they weren't using the right size test probes for checking the the terminal fit and they expanded them. They were not getting good connections. That was all that's wrong, but he had the sending units replaced twice on both of them. And it was just because they didn't use the correct size test leads when they, when they were working on it. Uh, Bruce, what do you want to say about that? When they called to make the appointment, we talked to them about their truck and I'm a big fan of turbo boost and exhaust gas temperature. I will ask, what is your boost on the level? What is your boost at wide open throttle at high RPM? And what's the exhaust gas temperature? The majority of trucks, especially ex-fleet trucks, do not have the gauges. So now we start from the beginning. And they tell us over the telephone what their problem is, and then we do a write-up. And then we tell them, please have a pencil and a piece of paper and jot down everything that you think is wrong with your truck. And then when you show up for the appointment, we interview them again and we do the write-up. And a lot of times, Brian, our shop foreman, will meet with them and talk to them. And then sometimes if we think it's electrical, we'll take them into our electrical engineering department and they'll meet with one of our five electrical engineers and we'll discuss it. They'll bring the laptop out, they'll download it. And if we think there's a question, we'll put it on a dyno and run it. And then it comes back into the shop. I'd like to say to the owners, the drivers that are tuning in to watch this, um, I think one of the problems they have is they don't often have a lot of confidence about what they're going to tell someone at the shop, you know, like yourself or your service manager, uh, the people at the desk. They're a little embarrassed maybe that they don't know as much as they probably should. They're shy. They're not really often good at communication. And so, um, I want to encourage the owners that need to keep notes in their notebook, for example, and not be afraid to share, hey, you know, a week ago, something didn't, like Jeff said, it didn't feel right, it didn't start right. You know, I tried to start it, then didn't sound right, I had to shut it off and restart it, and then it seemed to be right, or, you know, different things, or you know, maybe I got a bad tank of fuel, and I finally got through that last month. But did it cause problems? So I think people, like I say, I think they're embarrassed about maybe sharing because they feel like they'll be judged. We find that sometimes people will come in and they're talking to you at the parts counter and they'll have a whole list of things in their head and now they get the mental block. That's why we ask people to write it down. Yeah. And a lot of times whenever you're working on the truck, They'll come out of the driver's lounge and they'll say, oh, by the way, my truck was doing this. Or could you check this? Oh, could you put this gauge on or do this or put a new torsional damper and balancer on? Right. It's, it's nice when they have a note and have it written down. Very few do. Now, Jeff, you get a lot of repeat business. Uh, I 
I believe, based on the history I've had with you. So that really helps you and your shop. Uh, you do get people that come in off the road, they all go in or whatever. So how do you deal with getting the proper information? I personally talk to them. If I am not available, uh, my right-hand man, Jay, will uh, will get in there. He knows exactly what I would want to know. And if, uh, if I am not able to talk to them, we make sure we get all the contact information so that I can call them the first available time that I can talk to them about it because I will make sure that I road test everything before we work on it. Because there are so many times, for example, guys says he's got a clutch that's going out. And if you don't take it out for a test drive and then you go and you put a clutch in it, you take it out for a road test and you find out that synchronizers are out in the back section, you could have fixed that while it was out. So a lot of times they'll, they'll think that there's something else going on. For example, today, you know, the guy said he had a shake in his front end. It wasn't the shake in the front end. It was his air ride was too low and it was shaking in the back end, but he could feel it coming through the floor and the steering wheel. So, you know, it, it, you have to talk to them and I always want to talk to them before I drive it. So I don't have to waste my time driving it once and say, okay, now what am I looking for? You know, you need to find out everything you can just as, uh, as Bruce said, you need to get as much information as possible and good information. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as, you know, does it only act up when it's raining out or, you know, I mean, or when you hit a bump, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Jeff, um, speaking of the back, getting back to the kind of the emissions um, system, I believe you said that uh, about 20% of the work in your shop is related to after treatment. I was wondering if uh, you might characterize a, uh, for us a little bit the kinds of problems that you see there. Is it is it all related to to the DPF or is it the kind of things that I hear more about, which are, you know, sensors going faulty, um, uh, electrical problems within the system, you know? Yeah, it's a little bit of everything, but the bulk of the stuff that we work on, um, you know, we are a, a Navistar service dealer, yeah. but we really don't get that's a small portion of what we do. Yeah. Um, most of what we do is uh, local customers and we are getting more and more work. We're, we're getting customers from the Chicagoland area, which, you know, they're a hundred miles away. Um, you know, we're getting them from as far as, as St. Louis, you know, I would like to uh, say that we've got a pretty good reputation um, for the kind of work that we do, the personal, attention that we give to to the customer most of the stuff is is old enough that it's not in under warranty anymore right. a lot of them have been misused um or driven hard and put away wet and but they haven't been maintained properly and a good portion of it is electrical you know right. that if they've been using it in construction and uh, you get mud and everything up in there where the harnesses are and you're off road and everything's twisting around. That stuff works in and gets into not just connections, but in between where the, the harnesses, the sheathing and mounting brackets. And it'll wear right through. And, and at first, you know, like I was saying, as far as the problems will start when it's wet out, um, but eventually it gets where they're there all the time. You know, most of the time, if it's only when it's raining out or something like that, you've got an electrical fault somewhere that is 
rub through, but not enough that it's shorting it out permanent. But when you get the salt water and stuff like that, it actually will cause it to short across to something else and change the readings. And, you know, most of the time you can repair the harness. Um, there are some times where I had one a couple of weeks ago that it just, it, it was not repairable. So, yeah. you know, and those, fortunately, most of the OEM harnesses are replaceable. And right. at this point, they're still readily available. Everything, everything of the, the the vintage of truck that we're talking about is probably still, is definitely still available, right? From two thousand. Yeah, and then we do have a lot yeah. of knock sensors that go bad um, yeah. on a lot of them because we have contracts with school systems. Um, we've had a lot of the uh, deaf coolant control valves go bad. When they go bad, it causes the deaf to get so hot that it actually ruins the uh, optic eye in the deaf tank and also ruins the deaf tank level sensor all at the same time right. um we've had a, a lot of those Pro probably more that's probably the biggest things that we have had in the last year because we do so many buses okay and and is that a problem more in uh you know kind of more vocational applications than uh over the road well that was is just strictly on uh you know very little of the where they really had the real problems in the vocational was 07 and early 2010 emissions. Okay. You know, there was, there was a lot of changes in trying to make the fuel mapping work right because everything is completely different in stationary application because it's considered PTO mode and they're very strict um, for lack of a better term, each RPM and engine load has basically a piece of pie. And you cannot cross over on more fuel um, or more boost until you get past that that uh, little piece of pie to the next one. And so you get right there in the middle and then the EGR valves and uh, variable geometry turbo start working back and forth to try to get it over that. So there are they really struggled with that in the 2010 emissions, 07 emissions. You know, there was, you know, Navistar really tried to keep so that they did not have deaf like right, you know right. others did you know um fortunately they have have got that all that stuff resolved um but navistar did get a really uh you know they lost a lot of customers because of that um but they are they are coming back bruce uh gary has talked a good bit about the the kind of psychology of 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 um dealing with uh, emissions problems and, and kind of you know, or, or approaching them in a preventative fashion uh, just simply due to the cost involved um i was wondering if you run into that with pittsburgh power I, and i wanted you to talk a little bit about um you know the, the kind of diesel the diesel force cleaning that you can do at the shop there that uh um, quite costs quite a lot, but um, has a significant preventative, I think, effect on emissions if paired with your max mileage uh, catalyst, which is a fuel treatment. Um, do you do you run into um, uh, fear of cost uh, in that in that kind of uh, folks? No, not really. Yes, no. it is expensive. The chemicals for the diesel force cleaner are really expensive, but. When you look inside the head, such as on an ISX or an X15 Cummins, if you look before and after, after you do the diesel force, it will be bare cast iron. You'll think that it's a brand new head. It cleans that well. Now, keep in mind that if you wait till a half a million miles, 
you have a lot of soot and carbon built up in that engine, in the combustion chamber, the exhaust valves, the EGR valves, EGR cooler, and then down through the DPF. Now, when you're flushing all that, it's going down and it's going to uh, face plug the DPF. So after yeah. we do, do the diesel force cleaning and then we do a forced regen, if we think the DPF needs clean, then we'll remove it and clean it. And then we follow it up with a diet on the catalyst and the problems go away. We have ultrasonic cleaners here. We take the sensors that are in the exhaust system. We take the sensors out. We take them apart, put them in the ultrasonic cleaner for about 20 minutes. They look brand new. You put them back in and 99% of the time they'll work perfectly. So we don't have to replace a lot of sensors. Okay. And if you stay on the max mileage, it's one ounce to 25 gallons. It costs you one penny per mile to run the catalyst, but the savings is six cents per mile. They're saying that it's 17 cents per mile maintenance to run a newer truck with emissions, 2012 and up. The older trucks, the 2002 and older, were 10 cents a mile. Years ago, back in the, the mid-80s, it was five cents a mile. So whenever you run the max mileage fuel-borne catalyst, it'll take you from 17 cents a mile down to under 10 cents a mile maintenance cost on that truck. Have you guys, do you guys have a, have a good bit of a long-term um, uh, customers that have been running this for a long time and kind of proven that out? Yes, Jane Gates, it's actually Dr. Jane okay. Gates. She's been in the chemical business. It's 38 years now. She had worked on this formula for 12 years until, and then when I met her in 2017 at the Louisville Truck Show, uh, they came to our shop the following week, her and her partner, Britt. And we did some testing and we found out that uh, it burned 70% more of the soot and carbon in the combustion chamber. It lowered the NOx, I think it was by 30%. And we did see a slight gain in fuel mileage, but the catalyst is not made for fuel mileage. It's made to keep the engine clean. And anybody that has suffered from carbon packing on the rings, and if you've ever seen a piston that's had carbon packing, the piston ring is actually locked into the ring gland, and now it's no longer in contact with the cylinder wall. So now you have a tremendous amount of blow-by and oil consumption. The catalyst actually helps to eliminate, it, it eliminates that. But if you have an engine that's starting to use oil because of carbon packing, it will take and clean that piston and eliminate the oil consumption and decrease the blow-by. Now, if you wait too long, then you're going to have to rebuild it. So we have had clients on for three years now on the uh, max mileage catalyst, and they are running trouble free. And if you go on our website, pittsburghpower.com, and you go into the max mileage catalyst section, you can read a lot of the testimonials. And I, I give you one that's really interesting. This is a tour boat. It runs up the Columbia River. It hauls 96 passengers. It runs 3512 cats. These are big, large V12 caterpillars. The smokestack came right out through the center of the ship, right out on the upper deck. But they had black soot balls coming out of the stack and could not use that deck for their passengers. And that's where everybody wants to be when they're on a tour boat is up on a right. top deck. After running the catalyst for a few trips up the Columbia River, no more soot balls. Now they use the top deck. 
and the stories just go on and on. And if you have a Harley Davidson and you don't like the way it runs or sounds, what one cc per gallon and you'll be surprised after 10 miles of how quiet that engine will be. You can lug it down to a thousand RPM. We don't recommend that, but you can. Last night I was on the Harley and I came out of a, a 90 degree turn and I looked and I was at a thousand RPM and the bike just picked up and went. Mm-hmm. Mid sixties muscle cars, they do not like today's gasoline. They love the fuel borne catalyst. People were using it in log splitters, everything. <laughs> and it was designed for diesel. Right. But Dwayne Erke, who was an ex-dairy farmer in Wisconsin, he was the first person to put it in gasoline. He tried it in a Harley and a Model A and a Model T Ford. Yeah. He called me and said, Bruce, you have to try this. So, Jeff, how do you, you know, you don't have a cleaning system in your shop for filters. So, so some of the typical situations where you determine that the, the filter has to be cleaned and um, for the customer, go through a couple of the scenarios of the decisions that have been made and why and, and how you deal with that and helping them make the best long-term decision. Well, what, have, what would have led you to that point is, is you're most likely getting codes for the DPF uh Efficiency, the exhaust back pressure is going to be way too high. The DPF differential pressure is going to be too high. The um, SCR efficiency is going to be bad. Um, But yet your sensors are all appear to be working correctly. So then you would, uh, if somebody has run it way too long, or if there's any damage to the outside of the DPF. So if you ever have been in an accident and there's a dent in the side of it, it's damaged and it's going to be damaged internally too. So and that's something to keep in mind if you have a vehicle that's involved in an accident it's not just exhaust you know these are some pretty high dollar parts and if those things have been jarred very hard or there's a a crease in that thing it is i will bet money on it it's going to be damaged but you know you look back inside of it and and you can actually see the catalyst uh should look like a honeycomb and if you know the inlet side the outlet side should be clean it is not going should not be black if it's black or you see black coming around the outside edges of it, or especially if you have chunks that are coming out of it or cracks in it, it's bad. It's got to be replaced. The cost of these replacements are deterrent. John Osinga, the original person I talked yep. to, when I mentioned uh, replacing the filter, he says, oh, my gosh, you know what that thing costs? That's a real deterrent to maintaining the system for a lot of people. Um, you get pushback from people that say, well, is there any way you can, just, you know, pressure wash it or, you know, what else can we do? Do we have another alternative? If you're asking me that, um, I don't have an alternative other than clean, having it cleaned and tested or replaced it. Uh, there's not, there's no alternative to fixing it right. And on something like that, um, if it is failing all of those tests and, you know, it's testing bad, then that's the only route that we will go, you know, and if they want to take it somewhere else or have us force it to do a few regens and get it so they can make it on down the road and they can have it repaired somewhere else that they may want to do it, um, you know, that's up to them. But, you know, I know I get an awful lot of questions about going in and deleting these things. And I 
tell every single one of them, these engines and trucks are designed to have this on there. All you're doing is asking for trouble going in and, and deleting that kind of stuff. You know, you don't know what kind of calibrations they're putting in. You know, you may be able to make it so it performs good and gets good fuel mileage, but it's not going to last very long, most likely, because they, they're designed to work the most efficient right when they come out the door from the factory. Anytime you modify something like that, you're opening the door to other problems. That, that is something I hear a lot of, and, um, and I have to agree that uh, we have to be careful trying to, I guess, um, tree engineer these systems. It's not like the old trucks um, used to be. Because I had a question, like with your catalyst, with fuel treatment like that, and we over-treat that fuel. What happens if we get too much of this in the fuel um, for too long? Can it create issues in an issue in an engine? Yeah, we tell people it is one ounce, 25 gallons. Sometimes people have done two ounces of 25 gallon. And we say, uh, drive 100 miles or 200 miles down the road and top off your tank and continue to do that until we get it down to where we think it's one ounce to 25. But it has not, we have not had any ill effects because of that, but we tell people not to do it. Yeah, and because we know that people are, you know, they're human. And if one ounce is good, two or three might be better off than they think. Yeah. Maybe the cost of that product helps them maintain that one ounce. So that would be sure. a benefit of, uh, of that. Bruce, you mentioned some DPF uh, cleaning um methods that uh um it just sounded like you were talking about something that's that's somewhat that's fairly new and, and maybe a little bit outside of the box when we were talking earlier how, how do you how does pittsburgh power handle um dpf cleaning at this point well right now um we're doing a pressure washing and okay. in the next few months we'll become a uh, franchisee of dpf alternatives okay. and they do the ultrasonic cleaning uh, it's a, a very elaborate system, very elaborate testing. It's the finest of everything we've done. And yes, it's very expensive. Um, however, what will that cost for um, if someone needs a filter cleaned, roughly ballpark? And is there a difference between uh, manufacturing, you know, the, the truck uh, manufacturer, you know, does a Daimler system cleaner versus a you know, Cummins or Volvo? Is there a different cost for different systems? I can't answer that. I can tell you the average cleaning for the first time is four hundred and fifty dollars. And with DPF alternatives, if you run the max mileage catalyst and you have them clean your emission systems, they give you a lifetime warranty. If you need it cleaned again, they pay for the cleaning. They will pay for the cleaning. I see. You'll have to have receipts to show that you have been buying the the catalyst whether you buy it from them or you buy it from us or the Iowa 80 truck group, where we have about 108 dealers throughout North America. It doesn't matter where you buy it. You just have to have proof that you are using it. Jeff, you mentioned one time while I was at the shop, a shop worked on my truck that I owned for 17 years. And that's why I contacted Jeff about this story, because not only did they do great work, I trusted that the truth of the information and so on. When we look at these systems, I remember you mentioning that people have to be careful not to void warranties. You know, they may buy an older truck but still have a warranty. 
We have to be careful they don't do things that void their warranty. For example, you mentioned that you can have an, an exhaust leak on one of these systems, and if not careful, uh, you know, timely repairs. Is that an issue sometimes? One of the advantages of doing the diesel force cleaning, that foam will find every exhaust leak in that system, and then we do repair them all. But we always look for exhaust leaks. Yeah. And then the number one rule on a turbocharged engine is zero exhaust leaks, especially prior to the turbo. Okay. Jeff, what about the exhaust leaks? What do you have to say about that and warranties and what do you find? Well, as Bruce was saying, you, you can't have an exhaust leak. So this the way he's talking about, they would be able to find those very well. Um, but you also have to have you no know, boost leaks also. So both of those have to, a lot to do with the air management of the system. So if you're overfueling because of lack of boost or lower exhaust back pressure, you're gonna create more soot. And there are, let's say for example, when I think one of the things we had talked about was uh, where you could have warranty issues. If you've been driving the truck for any amount of time with the engine warning light on, if you've got an after treatment system, the DPF is disabled. If your engine warning light's on, it is not functioning. And it logs on all newer trucks. It will log how many times it's happened, what the time span is, and you know when the first time was, when the last time was. And all of that is compiled when, like, for example, we're an Avastar dealer. First thing we do is we hook up and we do what's called a health report. It takes every code from that truck and it is downloaded to Navistar. There's no lying to them. You know, they, it, this all pops up to them and they can see everything that has happened. And it's you are operating a thing with, let's say, for example, low fuel pressure um, for an extended period of time. And you wound up having uh, a, a fuel pump went out on it because all these newer ones are running very high fuel pressure or on some of the older Huey ones, you run low fuel pressure, it ruins those injectors, or you know it doesn't atomize the fuel well. All of these things go into maintenance items. If just, just because it was low fuel pressure, it could have been a fuel filter. And so because of not changing the fuel filter, cause the injectors to go bad or, and on down the line, the after treatment problems were a result of a lack of maintenance. So those are the kinds of things you really have to stay up on your truck. You know, make sure that these things, if that warning light's on, you need to get it looked at. You know, it may not be affecting how it's performing right now, but in the long run, it is going to because that after treatment system is disabled if the engine warning light is on. When people are driving their truck, even without warning lights, you know, you talked about knowing how the engine and the vibrations, how things sound in that. When you talk about engine performance, like low fuel or things, like I was big on tracking my fuel mileage for maintenance and repairs more than economics. If I saw a change, I wanted to get it in the shop and question, hey, go find what's wrong. There's something has changed. For example, is that a, um, a reasonable thing people, you know, as far as managing their equipment? Those kind of things, or what kind of suggestions would you make to them? I would say have them keep logs and do just like you did and log your fuel mileage, log how much oil you're going through and, you know, between oil changes. Um, 
I don't even know for sure where to go on this. I mean, there are so many things that I could tell people that they really should keep an eye on. Um, you know, how it's like I said before, how it feels, how it performs, you know, am I able to, you know, with a load, am I able to get up to 55 mile an hour and a half a mile? Um, you know, it may, it's still may get proper boost, but still not be able to perform like it did before. You know, just because boost is there doesn't mean that your performance is um, or the exhaust back pressure is is high. You may not, you know, your your injectors can be out of adjustment um, and it's not going to atomize the fuel as well. I'm sure that if Bruce would attest to this, you know, there are a lot of times it's just maintenance things. You know, if it's got 100,000 miles or especially 150,000 on it since it was overhauled. You know, at some point in there, you really should have had the valve set. You know, some valves will get tight, some will, some will get loose. It's not going to perform as well. You know, so documenting that kind of stuff is really important. I got a specific uh, question, um, but this is one I got from a reader, and it, and it kind of has to do with uh, uh, prevention and, and kind of service intervals uh, on um, any any parts of the emission system, you know, from, but, but particularly this, this, uh, this, this reader was asking about uh, the diesel partic particulate filter. Uh, he had an experience where you know he had to get he had to get a cleaning, or and I think he ended up being just a, a quick replacement. Um, that you know, like you uh, uh, talked about earlier, Jeff, um, while he was on the road, and he realized like later on when he was at home that um, you know he he basically paid four times the amount that uh, he you know for that that he would have on the road. I mean, if he was at home. Um, What's the how, how do we make the determination on a good interval for that? I know there are fleets out there that that kind of bump the 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 OEM you know sort of ballpark schedule. They bump it up and they do it more quickly um, uh, for for their equipment. Is is that is that the uh, prescription for it? Uh, do we have do we should we go by engine hours rather than um, rather than mileage? Given how much uh, how much uh, more uh, of an effect that idling has on um, soot in the DPF? It all has to do with how the truck is operated. Every driver yeah. drives it a little bit different. And if somebody's driving in the mountains, yeah, you know, it is going to uh, be pushed a bit harder when you're going up the hill and not as hard coming down the hill. If you're, you know, if you're uh, hauling um, road, road building materials, or if you're in, uh, working in a city and you're constantly speeding up and slowing down, that's going to increase, um, you know, the frequency of when you would have to do a regen or how often that it will do it on its own. So every, every vehicle is different and a good portion of it is it, how it's driven. You know, if you're the kind of person that drives like me, um, I don't put my foot in it very often unless I'm testing for performance on on a truck but when i drive my own stuff you know i my wife says i drive like an old man <laughs> you know I, I i just i don't drive stuff hard um but you, if you have somebody that's younger that you know trying to get an extra load in in a day or uh you know they know that their you know their hours are going to run out and they're going to push it harder and you do that frequently you know that everything every time you push it hard like that it does create more soot you know, it should take care of itself, but they can only hold so much. Uh, Jeff, the reason uh, you and I drive that way is because being mechanics, 
we know how to fix them, but we don't want to have to fix our own. <laughs> so we know, we know the limits of the mechanical aspect of life. And there's, there's just no reason to do that. And we do find that trucks that are like in the oil patch with a lot of idling, cement mixers, uh, school buses, they do suffer more from the carbon and soot buildup than a guy that's over the road. And a guy that does run through the mountains and does get it hot, we're finding in the summertime we have less problems than in the wintertime with emissions. Right. That brings up a good point. Um, we wrote this coming out of, you know, after the first of the year. Are we having more problems during winter with winter fuel blends and things like that versus summer? Can you tell a seasonal difference in these systems or and so on? Yes. Uh, once it started to warm up, people will report back to me that, and especially whenever they're crossing the Rocky Mountains or, or one of the large mountains out west, that the regenning is less. Obviously, we get some pretty severe cold here. Most of the time, it's not for more than just a few weeks. Um, you know, it, you absolutely around here, you have to use fuel additive when it gets that cold. Uh, fuel will just wax up. So there again, it, if it waxes up, your filter gets plugged up, you have low fuel pressure or it may not even start. Um, you know, it, as far as the after treatment portion of it, we really don't notice any more after treatment issues in the winter um, rather than summer. But a good portion of our uh, work that we do is construction. Um, and obviously in wintertime, they're not doing a whole lot. Real quick, Jeff, there's something you mentioned to me when I was interviewing you for the article about if, about condensation building up in the after treatment systems and how it may be beneficial to start the truck, get it good and warm, turn it back off to reset so that because of the condensation that may have frozen over in the system. Any thoughts on that that you share? For us, I mean, because we do get a lot of temperature change, warm and cold, and especially if a truck has sat for an extended period of time, um, you do get condensation that gets in there. And depending on how the exhaust is designed, there are some, a lot of trucks that the stack aims straight up in the air. And when it rains hard, that water gets down in there. It should drain out in the bottom, but sometimes those get plugged up. So the water can get backwards through the DPF. And then when you start it up, it could be they operated fine when it got parked, but then you had all the rain or the condensation got in there. If you start it up and start speeding the engine up, you could be going from it saying that the um, after treatment system is good the last time it was driven, right straight to a stage three uh, region just because of the water having to be forced out. And we've had a lot of them that you could, we physically took the pipes off and drained the water from them. Um, but yeah. obviously drivers don't want to, are going to want to have to do that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, if you were to start it up and just mildly take it up, you know, to maybe 900 RPM or so, and just let it sit there and warm up. If you've got that condensation in there, you're going to start seeing white smoke, which is just steam that's coming out as it warms up. And then once you let it run that way for a while and you stop seeing that, once you get out and hit the road, you'll see a lot more white steam come out. That's just condensation, water, rain, um, whatever that has got in there. But typically that doesn't happen just overnight unless you have had a deluge of rain 
and your truck was facing the right direction that the wind blew the rain down the stack. Um, you know, and, but I've even had them where they had a rain cap on and it did it. And that's because the wind was blowing so strong that it made the rain cap stand up and it captured even more rain. If trucks have been sitting, uh, voltage can be low. Sometimes it's helpful to let them run a little while, get the, get the, batteries up to uh, charge and you know more full so you get then turn it off and again let those settings reset with a higher voltage any thoughts on that you'd like to share i would yeah uh, definitely if if you notice when you go to start it there again it's going back to know your truck what does it sound like when you go to start it um if you notice one day that it just seemed like it cranked harder and maybe or longer um but it went ahead and started anyway uh, or you had to, it wouldn't start and you had to jump start it. Um, I personally would want to take and run it just long enough to get it so that the batteries are charged up. And then I would cycle the key off and then restart it because low voltage to all of those components I was talking about before, the EGR valve, the variable geometry turbo, you know, they're expecting a certain amount of voltage going to them and returning from them. If you're starting off with low voltage, the return voltage is going to be wrong. They very well could be calibrated wrong at that point, even though they did go with a full stroke. So low voltage causes all kinds of problems. So if I had started a truck and was very confident that the voltage wound up going too low when I started because it went and then took off, absolutely warm the engine up a little bit, restart it you know, shut it down, restart it, and you very likely will keep from having other issues as a result of that. And, you know, all at once you're, you've got an engine warning light on and you don't know why. And you can take it into the shop, they hook it up, everything tests fine. So now you're spending money to have somebody look at it and it really didn't need to be done. Okay, final question, guys. Uh, this one came in from uh, one of our viewers here and it has to do with um, when, uh, when you get uh, a DPF cleaning, um, uh, or you know, whether it's whatever method is is done, um, are there? Uh, he's, the reader is asking: uh, the, Do soot levels need to be reset? I think he's probably referring to um, uh, some um, something in the computer that probably that needs needs to be adjusted once you put it back in. I guess depending on the manufacturer, there are okay. some that uh, you there will be on the earlier ones. You actually had to put in a part number or. A serial number of it on okay um on others you just have to go in and just click on uh, a reset for it and it will log what the miles and hours are um so it all depends on the manufacturer you know you, yeah. you go on a, on a pack car you're going to probably have to go in and uh you know disable an egr delete um that would have happened depending on what the code is you know right. almost anytime you get those kind of codes it is going to disable the um the egr valve it you, if you don't go in and do that, the EGR valve is not going to function until that is done. So it is possible that uh, that those kinds of things would have to be done if you wound up going to the level where it was actually trying to shut down or go to a full D rate to five mile per hour. Bruce, any final thoughts before we get ready to wrap it up here? Because we're getting pretty yeah. close to the top of the hour. Every truck that comes into our shop, we pressure test the entire intake system. We find that about 80% do have a turbo boost leak. And I'm not okay. saying that it has a bad charge air cooler. It can be a hose. It can be a gasket. 
We pressurize the turbo, the piping going to the charge air cooler from the charge air cooler to the intake and the tube going down to the air compressor. So, and we fix all those. And a lot of power complaints come in that people want to put on a dyno. We put it on a dyno. We verify, yes, it's low power. The very next thing we do is spin a new fuel filter on. The power's back up. Yep. <laughs> that guy just spent $275 for a dyno test for the sake of a fuel filter. Oh, no. Years ago, 40 years ago, we used to change. It was routine. Owner operators would change their fuel filters every Saturday, once a week. Now with 50,000 mile drain intervals doesn't mean your fuel filter should go 50,000 miles. Pay more attention to the fuel filter and know whenever you change it. Always carry a couple spares. And if it's been on there for a couple months, you should change it. Well, I'll go one further than that. You know, and you just happen to mention like a 50,000 mile service interval. To me, oil's cheap. Um, I, I can't understand somebody even going 30,000 miles on an oil change. To me, the amount of damage that is done, and I know they've come a long way with different oils and filters, but if you're going to go ahead and go the 30,000 miles, in the middle, change the oil filter. You know, that filter still gets just as dirty, you know, and it only filters so much and then it bypasses after you get to that point. You know, I I re realize you're saving money by not changing the oil as, as often, but at least change the filter. Gary, and, final thoughts from you, sir. Yes, and uh, I'd add in there, um, I asked um, a well-known tech, um, Homer Hogg with uh, PA Petro Services, that same maintenance mistake. He quickly said, people don't grease their trucks. And mm -hmm. that's the other thing with these long intervals. People are not, you know, they don't know how to grease their own truck. They need to learn that if they're not going to go into a shop and have it done. They need to learn. They need to know the very basics. Our history is our base. Everyone's history is different. And in this business, it's like Groundhog Day. Todd and I talk about how things cycle back. And uh, both Bruce and Jeff being in this business as many years as you have, longer than either of us, I'm sure that you see these problems, you think, well, this is the same thing we've been talking about, you know, 20 years ago. So what's your interval for a fuel filter? Every Saturday? Big thanks to Bruce Mallinson of Pittsburgh Power, Gray's Garage owner, Jeff Gray, and our own contributing writer, Gary Books, from whom you can find much more via the Overdrive Extra blog at overdriveonline.com slash overdrive hyphen extra. Overdrive Radio is a production of Overdrive, the voice of the American trucker. It's edited and produced by myself, Todd Dills, with no small amount of support from Overdrive Extra contributor and Muller trucking hauler, Paul Marhofer, Overdrive editorial director, Max Heine, social media coordinator, Holly Young, and news editor, Matt Cole. Until next time, keep it pro out there.